could not save us. Even Moses with the law could not save us. It had to be Jesus. And we are here to glorify the name today and no other. God, we are not here to glorify the name of Brent Tysinger. What a weak name to glorify. And we are here to glorify the name of Wood. What a weak name to glorify. We are here to glorify the name of Jesus. We want his will to be done today. And Lord, I know it's a, a vacation weekend, a holiday weekend, and lots of folks are taking their one more shot to have a break before the school year begins. And so, Lord, I know that we probably won't have our normal number of people here today, but God, I believe you are so powerful that you have those here who need to be here. And I believe you have a message for us today. And I believe those who watch online later, God, you have a message for them. And I pray that when they watch online, they would feel just uh, as much of your presence as we feel here this morning. God, we want you to speak. If you don't speak, there's nothing of any worth going to be said. So we don't want my voice to come forward. We want your voice to come forward. Speak to our hearts, God. Change us. Make us different. Oh, God, make us different. God, we, we need to be different. The indictment against Christianity is it looks so much like everything around it, God. And, and we are not called to look like the world around us. We are called to look different. And God, I pray we would get there, Lord. I pray we would not have one foot in the world and one foot in you, God. But we would get off the fence and we would run hard after you. That you would be our chief desire, God. As A.W. Tozer said many years ago, to have found you for you God that's the soul's paradox of love Lord we are people who know you God but we want to know more of you because there's so much of you we will be learning things about you for eternity and so God we pray that you would just speak to us today Lord that you would God you would give us a little more of yourself and a little less of us we would decrease so that you might increase Father, we love you today. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for the matchless work of Jesus. It's on his merit that we stand here this morning. And it's in his name we pray. And Rushwood said together, amen. You may be seated. Y'all, I've been trying to give you something good to start every week lately. And so I'm going to give you something that might seem bad at first, but it ends up being good. Uh, my wife and I have committed to be at Love Life, the Love Life Walks on Saturday as much as we possibly can. Look, I'm just going to, we just might as well talk real this morning. I want you guys to pray for other pastors and other churches and other ministries. Because a lot of them do not want to get involved with this. A lot of them are very silent on this issue. And frankly, we need more of the body of Christ represented out there. So pray that God would soften some hearts. He would move some hearts. He would give people the eyes to see what he sees concerning this issue. But we were out there yesterday at the Love Life Walk, and uh, the other side is ramping their game up. We knew that was going to happen. If you've been around, I've been doing pro-life ministry on and off for about 10 years, and so we knew that was coming. But they had more of what I call the death scorts, the ones who escort the women to the abortion clinic from the other side. They had more of them out there. They were trying to blend in with the uh, crisis pregnancy workers. They were doing all sorts of stuff. When we went to pray and sing, they were turning their music up loud to try nasty, worldly, garbage music that unfortunately a lot of Christian kids listen to also. But anyway, they were turning that stuff up, and they were doing dances and mocking. And I've seen all this junk before. Um, but anyway, that, that's what they were trying to do. And that's not the good news. The good news is that we walk back over to the church that hosts us, and we walk, walk back to their parking lot, and I'm assuming it was the choir of that church, but spontaneously, with nobody directing them, they started to sing every praise is to our God. Every word of worship with one accord, every praise, every praise is to our God. And so they started singing, their worship leader got up there and started directing us what we are going to sing next, started lining it out, and man, the Holy Spirit fell on that parking lot, and all the darkness that had been done that morning was overwhelmed by the power of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. 
And the only shame is there weren't more people out there. Attend. We had a good crowd yesterday, for especially for a holiday weekend. But there were, we needed more people out there to experience it because God was there. We encounter God in here. Yes, we do. And I'm so glad that, that he, when we show up, he's already here and he's already working. But sometimes you encounter God in a different way out there. He's working in a different way out there. It's coming into conflict with, with the darkness in this world and the evil in this world. And, and you see a different side of God than maybe you've ever seen before. So that's the good thing, man. I wish you could have been there. I'm sure there's a video of it floating around somewhere online because people started pulling their phones out and started recording what was going on. And, man, those of you that were there, you know, man, God was, God was in the house and we weren't even in a house. It was awesome, man. It was, it was great to see. So I do encourage you, September 15th, they're looking for a couple of thousand youth to be out there and to be part of this. And, uh, man, let's, let's make that happen. And if it has to be 2,000 youth and people who are young at heart, that's good too, whatever. I'm going to be there. Let's show up. Let's be part of what God is doing in Greensboro. Well, today, guys, we have sort of an odd thing. Because of sabbatical, when I planned out this year's sermons, I didn't plan to be on a six-week sabbatical. That's something that kind of happened as the year went along, and we saw we had the need for it. And so I had basically, just long story short, my preaching schedule of preaching through the book of Ephesians has been kind of messed up. We jumped ahead to Ephesians 6, and, and the assistant pastors preached that while I was gone. And now we've got the whole book of Ephesians 4 to cover today. And so that's a little bit different, all right? But we're, we're going to get it done, and I believe God is going to use it. Obviously, we're going to have to take a 30,000-foot view of this thing, okay? We're not going to get down into details. It's not going to be word by word breaking it down or anything like that. And here's how we're going to start today, something very different. I'm going to read to you the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 4, not Hebrews, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you this morning. And this is going to give you a little bit of the early church experience, it was not until the 1500s that they added in verses and chapters to the Bible. Originally, everything was a letter, an epistle that was all together. Each book was not separated by chapters or verses. And by the way, just a little bit of Bible knowledge for you. The chapters and verses are not inspired. Sometimes they break in the wrong spot. Sometimes there's a thought that breaks in one chapter and is continued on to the next chapter. Sometimes there's, there's a verse break in the middle of the verses. And so when you're reading the Bible, just be aware of that, that sometimes God keeps saying something even after the numbers change over, even after the chapter changes over. But what they would do in the early church, if Paul wrote an epistle to the church at Galatia, well, then one of their elders would stand up, and they would read the entire epistle. They would, that would be their church service probably that day, is reading the letter that Paul had written, all of it, all in one sitting, all in one hearing. And so we're not going to read the entire book of Ephesians, but we're going to read all of chapter 4. And this is long, and we're modern people, and we're used to commercials that change every three seconds, and we're used to all kinds of entertaining stimuli. And so it's hard for us to stop and zero in on just a section of scripture that's of this size. So here's your challenge this morning. Don't get bored with God's word. This is God's word. It's powerful. It's true. It's perfect. It converts us if we let it. It's something that we need to, don't be bored of it, but see what God says as I read this entire chapter to you, and then we're going to go and we're going to get kind of the meat of the chapter, the, the main central meaning, meaning of this chapter, and I'm going to expound on that a little bit. I'm not going to make you stand because your legs would be tired and your brain would stop listening, so uh, I'm going to let you see it as I read this to you. But we're going to read this morning all of Ephesians chapter 4. God's Word says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent for, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. I got I to gotta say something right there. My job is not to do the whole job. My job is to equip you to do the job. Amen, Brent. That would be a good place for an amen right there. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Boy, there's some winds of doctrine blowing that are garbage, and we don't need to listen to them. We need to be founded in our faith. We need to be rooted, what we've talked about for the last six weeks. Every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this I say... And affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which, is the, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another." Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. That's a good verse for the government. Uh, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment so it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Can we give, some, can we give God some praise for his word this morning? And there, there is so much there. I could have preached the entire year on Ephesians chapter 4. I could probably preach two years easily on just Ephesians chapter 4. There's a lot there. But it's helpful sometimes when we're reading God's word. And I know the cha chapter breaks are kind of arbitrary and can kind of be in the wrong places, but they're there. And, and so sometimes it gives us a helpful framework. Sometimes it, it's really interesting when you're studying God's word to look at a chapter and say, okay, what is the central idea of this chapter? What is the big thing that God is trying to say? Because sometimes we get lost in the details, and we worry over every little detail and every little word and every little phrase when God is saying, hey, you ain't even got the big picture right yet. You hadn't even figured out the big thing of what I'm trying to say to you. So if I had to say, I was looking at this the other day, what is the central idea of Ephesians chapter 4? And by the way, let me give you this real quick. Ephesians is an amazing book. Some people call it the perfect epistle because the first three chapters are theology. And they're all about who God is, what he's done for us, salvation, that sort of thing. 
Then the last three chapters shift to very practical matters. How then shall we live? Seeing that all this is true in these first three chapters, how then shall we live according to the truth? And so some people have called this the perfect epistle. After today, we're going to get into very practical stuff to end up the year 2018 with this book. Central idea. Central idea of this whole chapter, I believe, is found in verse 17, right around there. And it says, This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. You walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. I've taught you already who the Gentiles were. They were anybody that weren't Jews. They were anybody that, that was not part of God's people. Those who some, They might have even used the term heathen or pagan to describe the Gentiles. And so Paul is saying, walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. Let me translate that for you. If you want to be a Christian, you are going to have to make up your mind that you will live differently than the world around you. Let me say that again for those in the back. If you want to be a Christian, you are going to have to make up your mind that you will live differently than the world around you. You are not going to be able to live like the world and follow Jesus. It is impossible. It cannot happen. There will have to be a difference in your life. There will have to be a change that comes in your life by following Jesus Christ. It was true for the early church. And it's true for us now. We always talk about how evil our culture is. And I'm about to give you some examples of some bad things going on in our culture. And we talk about, I, sometimes I say it's the soup we swim in. I mean, we've got, we've got our kids, man, they're just inundated with it day and night. It surrounds them everywhere they look. They can't look away from it because it's everywhere in this culture. There's all this evil. There's all this wickedness that's exalted and all the good that's torn down. And the Bible says woe when that happens. Woe for those who put good for evil and evil for good, who say wickedness is a, is a good thing and good is a wicked thing. Woe to those who flip it upside down. But it was also true for the early church. It was true that they lived in a very wicked time. Give you some examples. Not only did they not care always for their children, but if a child was born with a deformity in those times, oftentimes they would take the children out and they would leave it exposed. They'd put it in a field or some place where they believed that the child would either die from exposure or be killed by a wild animal because if they had a deformity, if they had some, a handicap, then that was just too much to take care of. But thank God for the early church. You know what the early church would do? They would go to that field. They would hear that baby crying. They would take that baby in, and they would make it become part of the church and raise it to know Jesus Christ and give that child a chance at life. It's a deep tradition. It's a very deep tradition in the Christian faith that we would do such a thing. But that's one of the evil things that was done. Sexually speaking, there was hardly anything held back from those who surrounded the early church. Men would have their wives, and then they would have prostitutes, and then they would have others. They, they were, there was a thing of pederasty where an older man would develop a relationship with a young boy, a sexual relationship that was very prominent. They had an evil culture as well, as well as the fact that the culture would say that Caesar is Lord. When the early Christians declared that Jesus is Lord, it was a strongly countercultural statement. Everybody else was saying Caesar is Lord. The early Christians said, no, no, no. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. That was the simplest creed of the early church. Jesus is Lord. And sometimes today we still get it confused. In the Caesar of our day and time, our government, we believe they are the Lord. They are the sovereign. They are the ones that protect us. And they're just simply not. Jesus is still Lord. So the culture was messed up in their day. It's messed up in our day as well. I want to give you some actual headlines. These are actual headlines from when I worked on this sermon. Within two weeks of this sermon, these were actual headlines. I didn't change any of them. I'm not even going to comment on them. I'm just simply going to present these headlines to you that come from our culture. First one, Disney to feature first ever openly gay character in upcoming family film. Second headline, Colorado Baker under attack again, this time by an angry transgender lawyer. Third, new cardinal says abuse victims should be ashamed to speak due to their own failings. 
Next one. Planned Parenthood poised to take advantage of back-to-school season. Next one. Trump condemns social media censorship. Too many voices are being destroyed. Next headline. Oprah promotes Shout Your Abortion campaign in latest magazine. Final one. American Library Association doubles down on drag queens reading to kids. This is our culture, guys. This is what we live in. And furthermore, it's not evil that this stuff is going on. It's evil that you have a problem with it. That's how a lot of our culture sees it. We have a culture that is increasingly hostile to true Christianity. It's all right with watered-down, immature Christianity. It's fine with that. But true biblical Christianity, when we say this is the final judge and Jesus is the final standard, they have a real problem with that in our culture. These are real things. We live just like they did in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a great book for any culture because they lived in a culture that was idolatrous and sinful and hostile, openly hostile toward those who were following Jesus Christ. It's very similar to our culture. So after reading that stuff, is there any question that our culture is a messed up godless culture? Any questions? And we could go on and I could spend, and I hate spending time in the dark because I'd rather spend time in the light, but I do want you to see some of the things that are going on. We live in a messed up godless culture, and so our challenge then becomes, how do we react to a godless culture in a godly way? I hope you've asked yourself that question. How do I react to this godless culture in a godly way? How do I react to it in a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ? Well, let me give you some things. A, a, a fellow pastor shared this with me just a, probably a month ago, and I said, man, that's good. I'm going to steal that, and I'm going to use that one Sunday morning. And so it just fits together really good right here. How do we react to a godless culture in a godly way? Well, the first thing you need to know is we need to act like God. We need to emulate God. We need to have his attributes. We need to have his power. We need to have his thoughts as much as we possibly can. And so if we're going to talk about God, I believe the chief two attributes of God are, first of all, the greatest attribute of God is an is a attribute called holiness. Holiness. Something you do not hear in a lot of churches anymore. We're great at talking about grace. We're great at talking about mercy. And yes, we need to talk about those things. But the chief attribute of God is his holiness. What does holiness mean? Holiness means other. Holiness means different. God is different than us. He is higher than us. He is set apart from us. God is perfect in all of his ways. Everything about God is perfect. Every good gift he gives is perfect. God is perfect. He is holy. He's not. He's different than us. We can get mad at God. We can judge God. We can, as C.S. Lewis said, we can put God in the dock and we can almost persecute God and prosecute God and bring a case against God. And God is still holy and he's still perfect. And when you disagree with God, guess who's wrong? It ain't God. It ain't God. He is holy. He is perfect. He is good. He has standards. He has ways that we are supposed to live. He has ways that we are supposed to act. Holiness is a good thing. Holiness should be preached more than it is preached. Holiness should be talked about in Christian circles more than it is talked about. Holiness is the chief attribute of God. I would say, though, that the second attribute of God is this. It's his love. Oh, man, we like talking about that one. Makes us feel good, and, you know, every church has something with love in their mission statement. We do, too, because we know that the culture enjoys hearing that part of God, but they want to define it now. And love means total acceptance of whatever they do, total sometimes even participation in whatever they do. But the love of God is something different even. Because God is holy and he's different than us, his love is different than ours. has to be by his very nature. His holiness comes through in his love, and so he doesn't love like we love. We love very selfishly oftentimes. We love so that we can get something in return. We love so we get emotional gratification. God is not like that. God is holy. He is perfect. And his love sometimes, poets and songwriters have described God's love as a raging fire, an all-consuming fire, that God's love sometimes hurts because it's so powerful and it's so strong and it, it has such a direction to it. 
But these are the two chief attributes of God. And so sometimes when people ask me, what is the chief attribute of God? I'll put them together and I'll say God's chief attribute is his holy love. That's his chief attribute. That's the thing that is more God about God than anything else is God about God is his attribute of holy love. God loves us and he is holy all at the same time. Well, you say, well, what, is, what are these bars for? Well, holiness has this vertical aspect to it. Love has this horizontal aspect. We're, we're, as we're holy, we try to love God. As we move in this direction, we're trying to love the people around us, the culture around us. And so basically, what th- there are four different ways that we can respond to the culture, or culture around us. One of the things we can do, and this is when we really attempt to focus on holiness, sometimes maybe to the exclusion of love, is we become anti-cultural. Anti-cultural. We are against the culture. We are against what's going on around us. Think Westboro Baptist Church if you want a picture of anti-cultural. And by the way, I'm so tired of Christians, any Christian who takes a stand for anything, oh, you're one of those people like Westboro Baptist Church. Do you know what Westboro Baptist Church is? It's a group of about 20 or 30 people. They're all kin. They're all this hyper-Calvinist view of God where God gets glory by people being hated. And they go out and they scream and they shout and the media says, oh, that's, all, that's what all Christians are like. That's a lie. We're not like that. I have nothing to do with those people. I condemn those people. I don't want any part of those people. But if you want a picture of a church that's just completely anti our culture, it would be. They're a good picture of that. They help us learn that very well. Now, there are some times where we have to be anti-parts of our culture. There are things in our culture we should stand against. There's things in our culture we cannot participate in or agree with at all, and we have to radically be opposed to those things. Human trafficking is something that's in our culture. We have to be anti that. We have to be against that, enslaving people and kidnapping people and all that garbage. And by the way, do you know that North Carolina is the seventh most human traffic state in the United States now because of our highway system it's very prevalent but we are anti those sort of things we're anti a lot of the things the culture is putting down the pike and so we have to be there sometimes but we can't live there and we can't be against every facet of our culture or we become a part against the people who are part of our culture so if we're still trying to stay on the holiness side but we don't really want to be seen as anti and opposing always then we come down here and what we become is subcultural. Sub means under. We build an underculture. We build a secondary culture, like a Christian ghetto almost. And we hole up in our churches and, and, and we only hang out, you know, us four and no more. We don't nobody, want anybody else coming into our church because we're not sure. They not, might not be holy enough. So we build this subculture and we come up with our own music, which is like the world's music but never as good. And we come up with our own movies, which is like the world's movies, but never as good. And we come up with our own art, which is usually subpar art. Everything is sub. And so we just kind of hold out, hide out, and we say, okay, Jesus, come back soon. We're just going to hang on, and just by the skin of our teeth, we're going to be here hanging on when you come back. And so uh, please, Jesus, come back soon. And, Lord, I pray that sometimes, Lord, come. Lord, come. But that's not my entire life. That's just part of my life. So we, be, we can be sub cultural and that becomes an issue then on the love side though some have said man I don't want to be seen as a hater and I don't want to be seen as somebody who is just a recluse and doesn't want to be around anybody so I don't want to do any of these things in fact I want to make sure that the culture and everybody that's part of the culture knows I love them and so then we become co-cultural we just wherever the culture goes we go Disney makes the movie okay I'm going to go buy a ticket and see it Disney's, oh, I've always enjoyed Disney. No matter what they're putting out now, I'm going to go buy the ticket. I'm going to see it. Co-cultural. Oh, you mean, you mean uh, that, that rapper just dropped a new album and it's full of sexual innuendo and terrible things and talks about killing police and everything. But, hey, that music sound, it's got a good beat to it. I don't want anybody to think that I'm one of those weird Christians. So we become co-cultural. And just wherever the culture goes, we just go right along with the stream. G.K. Chesterton said, by the way, that only live things can swim against the stream. Dead things go with the stream. If there's some life in us, we're not going to be always co-cultural. These are the churches that are so hip it hurts. 
These are the churches that have no standards, and you've seen them. We won't, obviously, we won't name that, but you've probably seen and you've probably heard. And a lot of times the world loves that church, but there's no holiness there. And if there's no holiness there, you cannot truly reflect who God is because that's his chief attribute. So we can be anti-cultural, we can be subcultural, we can be co-cultural. Here's the one I would suggest. I would suggest we become counter-cultural. As Christians, we need to be countercultural. What does that mean? Actually, countercultural has some aspects of all three. Sometimes, as countercultural, we're against things. Sometimes we pull back from culture because we just can't participate in it. Sometimes we can go along and we can do certain things that maybe are neutral and don't really cause a lot of problems, and we can go along with culture. But overall, what we do as a countercultural movement is we offer something different than what the world is offering. We live differently, we speak differently, we think differently, our values are aligned differently. We, we become different people than what the culture is around us. We become countercultural. All the great revival movements in history were countercultural. The great Reformation that we've talked about on Wednesday nights was a countercultural movement, especially within the church, but, but it spread to everything else. It was a movement that said, you know what? There's too much power at the top. There's no, not enough respect about the individual. There's not an individual link to God. And so that became a countercultural movement. The Wesleyan movement of the 17th century, which our church comes out of, and I believe my ministry comes out of, and everything else, it was a countercultural movement. It said this culture is doing certain things that are wrong. One of them was the church always stayed in the church. And John Wesley and George Whitfield said, we cannot just stay in the church building anymore because there are people out there who are lost and dying and going to hell, and we're going to go to where they are. And so field preaching was born. John Wesley preached five times a day. He preached his first sermon every day at 5 a.m. because that's when the coal miners were going to work. And so he'd get up and he'd go preach to them, preach five times a day, traveled thousands of miles on horseback was beaten, was spat upon, was hit, with hit, with, was hit with rocks and bricks and bottles and all kinds of stuff. But he, he started a counter-cultural movement that offered something better than what the culture was offering. And church, I believe this is where we need to live. We need to offer something not worse, not just against, not that ju just it goes with the stream, but something better and different than what the world around us is offering. The world is in darkness, y'all. The world is lost in a lot of ways, a lot of ways, and it's sad. It's sad to see where people are, and the church is just so silent. A lot of us, we really fall right here. We fall in this subculture. We're just hanging on. I call it rapture, rapture mentality. One day God is just going to rapture us out of here, and so we'll just hang on until that happens. That is not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to go unto all the world and preach the gospel to all nations until Christ comes. Not to bunker down, hunker down, and hide. That's not what God is calling us to do. Well, I want to give you an image of what that looks like. An image of what a, a, a countercultural Christian looks like at the end of our time today. You may be wondering why I'm wearing this t-shirt today. First of all, I like the t-shirt. And uh, the Wesleyan Church actually comes from an abolitionist background. We were opposed to slavery. We preached on slavery. We, we, we would not shut up until it was ended. That's where this church and churches like it originally came from. But I'm wearing this shirt today in honor of a young man named Jeremiah Thomas. I'm actually, in memory of him. I met Jeremiah's father probably about 10 years ago through some mutual friends. His dad's name is Rusty Thomas. And Rusty is president of Operation Save America. And I'm sure a lot of people put them right here a lot of times because they do oppose a lot that is evil. But... Rusty Thomas, hey, man, you, you just met this guy, you just loved him instantly. He loved you instantly once he met you. He just had a big heart full of love for God and love for other people. And Rusty, one of the things I found out about him is he had 13 kids. And uh, so they called him the Thomas Nation. And uh, Rusty had several sons, several daughters, obviously. He came and he preached at my church uh, several years ago. He just happened to be in town, and he was about to fly back out to Texas he came by my church and he actually preached on Islam, gave us a lesson on Islam before he left and went back to Texas. But just an amazing man of God, a devoted man of God. 
Well, his son, Jeremiah, we've been praying for him. Many of you know some of his story. We've been praying for him, and we've been talking about him for a while. And uh, there's a video that's been put out. I'll just go ahead and tell you, Jeremiah passed last Sunday about 7.20 p.m. Uh, we were actually, I, I, I went over to Young at Heart, and I was part of our meeting over there. And one of the hymns they chose to sing, or gospel songs, or however we would define that, is when we all get to heaven. And when they sang that song, I feel like God let me know that Jeremiah was going to pass last Sunday. And when I came home, I found out that he had passed. But he put out a video, his family and his friends put out a video, his message to his generation. And I wanted to show that to you this morning, to show you what a countercultural young man looks like. And then I'm going to come back up here and I'm going to tell you some more of his story. Uh, but I want us to watch this video together. And Blake, I think it goes black at the end. You might just want to cut it there. But uh, let's watch this and watch what Jeremiah was, would say to his generation of Christians. There are many ways to be brave in this world. Sometimes bravery is laying down your life for something bigger than yourself. Sometimes bravery is nothing more than gritting your teeth through pain. And sometimes it's letting go of everything. My name is Jeremiah Thomas. I have bone cancer, and I am dying. Three months ago, I was diagnosed with an aggressive cancer. The doctors say my time is almost up. My dream to play college football is dead. My dream to minister is dead. I was absolutely blindsided by this news. In less time than it takes to play a full football season, my life has been taken over by cancer. So here I am. I'm lying down in bed, typing this letter. I've lost my hair, my ability to walk, the sensation in my legs and back, and my football career. But I haven't lost my faith in open God. In fact, my faith in Him has been strengthened. I've grown so much closer to my Savior, knowing full well that my life is in His hands. He has been with me every step of the way, guiding me and teaching me. I don't know how much time I have left on this earth, but with what time I do have, I want to account for God and my generation. This is my call to my generation. Leave it all behind. We've grown up in a culture of death, sexual confusion, immorality, and fatherlessness. One third of our generation has been wiped out due to abortion. Over 25 million people have died as a result of AIDS. More young people die from suicide than from cancer and the other seven leading causes of death combined. My call to you today is to come back to the Father. Leave behind the darkness deception and despair. If you're going through depression, there is hope in Christ. If you're battling disease, there is healing in Christ. If you're contemplating suicide or abortion, there is abundant life found in Christ. Let's make a journey of saving faith back to the Father's house. It is there and there only we will find life, love, and life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is my sincere prayer that you will take my words to heart and be reconciled to the Lord through the merits of Jesus Christ. May God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in Jesus' name. This young man, it was only about a year ago that he rededicated his life to Jesus Christ. And you see the, uh, the video of his dad baptizing him. You couldn't hear the audio there, but his dad said, here he comes, Lord. He's always been yours. He's never been mine. And about a year later, this young man has gone into eternity. But I wanted to share some things from Jeremiah's life. Look, 15 and 16 years old. This young man was a warrior for Jesus Christ. Some things that happened in his life, and some may have been covered in the video, but some notes I have on him. Again, one of 13 children. He was a star football player. He was the MVP of the Texas championship game uh, at only, I believe, 15 years old. Uh, just just had these, all these great aspirations for what God was going to do with his life. Rededicated his life in the summer of 2017. Came back home on fire for, for God. His family had raised him so well, and they had taught him so well. But his dad said when he was baptized and when God's spirit came upon him, everything that he had been taught suddenly became true to him. And he wanted to tell his whole generation about Jesus Christ. Less than a year later, he started to have pain in his chest. And they thought it was a football injury. And 
he was hurting so bad he would actually lay on the floor and beat on the floor and they took him for several tests and they all came back clear and then finally they found that he had a large tumor, a large aggressive tumor in his chest that was too close to his heart, too close to other vital organs to remove and saying it was so aggressive it eventually ate through his spine and he was not able to walk after that. And so Jeremiah's response when he learned that he would never walk again, he said, fine, I will preach from my wheelchair. This was this young man's attitude and heart. Doctors told him he had a 10% chance to live. Make-A-Wish offered him a wish, and he didn't want to go to Disney World, and he didn't want to go to Six Flags or anything like that. Jeremiah said, I want to talk to the governor of Texas about ending abortion in the state of Texas. And through a series of events, he actually was able to talk to one gubernatorial candidate, and he was actually able to talk to Governor Abbott about ending abortion in the state of Texas. And so his, his story was picked up by Fox News. He was a midnight hero on one of the Fox News um, uh, programs there. And uh, his testimony went all over the world. Kids from Italy called and said, how do we end abortion in Italy, Jeremiah? I mean, he just such an amazing impact and then the hate mail started pouring in because people found out what his last wish was and here's some of the actual things that people wrote on Jeremiah's social media one of them said cancer is giving your mom a late-term abortion LMAO another person said aren't you dead yet God do your job another person wrote see you in hell ugly Jeremiah's parents kept him from seeing the post for a while, but eventually he, he found them on his Instagram account. And they said he got real quiet for a couple of days. 15, 16 years old, having all this hate poured out on you, all these people talking bad about you, strangers wishing for your death, saying your death can't come fast enough. Imagine processing that at his age. So what did Jeremiah do? A couple of days later, his parents looked at his Instagram account and he had a picture of himself praising God, and up top it said, does anybody out there need prayer? He wanted to pray for those who hated him. He wanted to pray for those who were wishing for his death. Now, only God can do that. Some people say there's no evidence of God. That's evidence of God. Only God can give you that sort of spirit in the midst of hate, in the midst of ugliness. Only God can do that. Jeremiah wanted to pray for his persecutors. I told you last Sunday night that when we sang, when we all get to heaven, I knew that God was going to take Jeremiah home that day. Um, and I did get home and found out he'd gone to be with the Lord. This will tell you something about his family. He passed away, and his family went back to the family house, and all, all of his siblings that remain, his mom and his dad, they all had a worship service to praise God for how good he is after their son had passed into eternity. That's a cr real Christian family. That's people who really know Jesus Christ. That's countercultural. That's different. That's better. That's above what the culture would do. This is a young man who had courage much more than most of the pastors I know, much more than the other Christian, most Christians that I know. And I've said this, and I'll say it again. I would rather have 16 years on this earth that made the kind of impact that Jeremiah Thomas made than 61 or 106 or any other combination of numbers you can come up with of a normal milk toast Christian life. A life that does nothing for God. A life that's never sold out for Him. A life that never experiences the true greatness of who God is and experiences His fullness. Here's how we're going to end this service today. I want to make a call first of all. If you're here and let's say if you're 30 and under, my first call is to you. In our culture, 30 is, is, is young. If you're 30 and under, from birth to 30 years of age, I want to put out to a call to you. Jeremiah's funeral was Friday, and his dad preached his funeral. And one of the things he said was, the baton has fallen from Jeremiah's hand. Who will pick it up? I want to ask you, young people, if you are willing, and I, I'm, I'm almost 40 now, so I can say that. I want to ask you, will you pick it up? And let me tell you exactly what that looks like if you're going to pick up that baton. That means you're going to make God number one in your life. Really make God number one in your life. 
You're going to love to be with his people in church. You're going to love to daily be in his word and learn more about him and hear from him on a daily basis. That's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like that you put God above money. You let God, if you're choosing a career path, you let God choose your career path. You don't choose your career path based on what will give you enough, uh, enough money or, or satisfaction or anything else. You let God guide you in that. It means if you're looking for a mate, if it means if you're looking for someone to spend the rest of your life with, you let God, you pray about it, you let God guide you to that right person. It means that you're going to turn away from drugs. It means that you're going to turn away from drunkenness. It means that you're going to see the garbage stuff this world is putting out, the music the world is putting out that's full of nasty things and ungodly things, and you're going to say, I will not let that in my life because I want to be pure before God, and you will not participate in that. There will be movies and things that try to change your mind about the Word of God and what God's Word says, and you will say, no, I will not be part of that. That won't be part of my life. I'm going to stay pure in that area. You're not going to watch things online that get in your mind and think, make you think that some sort of other sexuality is okay, and there's lots of sexualities out there now. God's Word teaches this. One man, one woman, one lifetime. One man, one woman, one lifetime. And there's so much junk out there telling us that, that God, you can, you can live that way and you can live for God. It is a lie from hell. You need to live for God. You need to live sold out for Him. If you're going to actually pick up that baton of a young man like this, you're going to want to culturally be different. You're going to want to live for Christ in everything you do, everything you say. He's going to be number one in your life. If you want to be different in this way, you'll go back to school this week, young people. If you're still in school, you'll go back to school and you'll make a difference there. You'll care about those who nobody else cares about. You'll go up to people who maybe you maybe you'll lose popularity for talking to these people, but you'll go up and you'll talk to them and you'll love them because Jesus loved everybody. You're not going to go along with what the world says about murdering children before they're born. You're going to, in fact, you're going to work against that. This is the call that Jeremiah was putting out to his generation, and I believe God is using this young man. I just saw his brother put a post online about his funeral, and he said. How do I leave the funeral of my little brother and feel energized and feel excited and feel hopeful? He said it's because God is using this young man's life to do something in this nation and in the youth of this nation and in this culture. And he said he called him Paul Revere. He said he was almost like Paul Revere and the shot heard around the world. He said, Jeremiah, the five months that he had since he found out about having cancer and that he was going to die, those five months God used him to change the entire world, to speak a message to the entire world. If God can do that with him, what can he do with us? And so I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. If you come up here, understand, I don't want you to come up here out of peer pressure. Please stand. Everybody stand. And I'm not going to ask you to come up here because Pastor Brent is preaching this. I'm going to ask you to come up here because God is saying, I want you, young person, to live differently. I want you to stand out. Like we talked last week, to shine like stars in a crooked and, and adulterous generation, in a broken generation. God is calling you. You're, you're acknowledging God is calling me to be different, to live different, to think different, to act different, to be sold out for Him, to be holy for Him, loving, yes, but also holy for Him. And I don't, I don't want you to come up here out of pressure. I want you to come up, he, out, up here this morning because you mean it. But if you come up here, I'm going to anoint you. And we'll take this oil. This oil is, is just oil. It's just, a, it's just a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's just a symbol of God's Spirit that He wants to place on you. And look, I don't know. If you give your life over to God, I don't know what it's going to look like. It might look like Jeremiah's life. It might be short, brief, and powerful. And that's a risk you've got to take because once you put your life in God's hands, then He's in charge. If He wants you to live to 100 years old like John the Beloved did and... and, and touch the world the way he did, or if he wants to let you come into eternity like Jeremiah did, that's up to God. You're saying, God, my life is out of my hands. My life is in your hands. The worship team is going to sing a song, and I'm just going to stand right up front here.
And those of us, we'll let them lead the way. If you're 30 or under, we want you to step out first. I'm not saying that somebody else, somebody else might need to come who's above that age, and that's fine. Young people, are you willing to take a stand and say, I want to live differently in this world. I want to shine like a star for Jesus Christ. I want to be a fire. I want to be lit, on flame, lit a flame for him, and everybody can come and watch me burn. Is that you? Do you want to step out? Do you want to live differently? Don't lie to yourself. If that's not you, stay right where you are. But if that's you, I invite you to come, and I'm going to anoint you, and I'm going to pray over you, and we're going to commission you to go out as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and make a difference in this world. We invite you to come. Please come. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever be. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. God, we live for you. Sure. 
God, we pray over everybody that's down front. God, they heard it, and Lord, I didn't preach it in some way to fool them or to trick them, Lord. I told them not to come up here if they didn't mean it, and so they're here, God, and so I believe they mean it before you. God, help them to let go of any sin that would shackle them and hold them back, God, so they can run this race with boldness. Lord, these young people make them warriors for you. Just as when Gideon was afraid of the Philistines and he was hiding in the wine press and he was threshing wheat, God, and you sent your angel and he appeared and said, Hail, mighty man of valor. Call the valor, call the, call the strength out of them, Lord, we pray. Let them shine in this world and be unashamed for you, God. And Lord, our older, anybody that's older than 30 that came up here, God, to pray as well, Lord, do a work in our lives as well. We need a fresh touch from you. Lord, you are here. Your spirit is in this place. You are moving. And God, you are commissioning, commissioning us to send us out into this world to be lights for you. Help us to shine bright, Father. Thank you for your presence here this morning. God, do not let it in when we go out this door. God, when you called me in the ministry and the, the service was over, Lord, I had a seven-hour ride, eight-hour ride back to Ashboro from where we were, Lord, and, and you were with me and your presence was, was with me that entire time, God. And I pray they would have that sort of experience that when they go out of here, the service, the worship would not end, God, but they would know truly that they have been in your presence and that you are in them in a new way, God. Father, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for being here this morning, God. Thank you for speaking to us. Help us to rise up. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And Rushwood said together, amen. Don't forget the giving boxes on the way out. Look, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. We'll see you Wednesday night. Go in his peace.